I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the founder and CEO of Intelstore, Phil Tataro, and the chief commercial officer of WeatherGuard, Joel Saxon. And this is your newsflash. Newsflash is brought to you by our friends at Intelstore. If you need actionable information about renewable projects or technologies, check out Intelstore at intelstore.com. Reinsure Score has launched a new offshore renewable energy insurance consortium with partner Acrisure Re. The consortium increases Score's total deployable capacity to over $180 million. Score says its technical expertise and understanding of client needs positions it as a leader in providing insurance to the growing offshore wind industry. So, Phil, another insurance company hopping into the offshore market. There seems to be a lot of uh, people putting their toes in the water at this point on offshore. Uh, $180 million is not a lot of money in, in that marketplace, but it does seem like people are testing the waters. It's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, certainly good to do with a partner. Um, the challenge with offshore is obviously with the scale, you know, like you're saying, $180 million in deployable uh, capital is not going to really make that much of a dent. Uh, and the overall global market, which is, you know, well over, you know, a, a trillion dollars in investment, even at this point. Um, so the reality is that, I mean, insurers have seen a lot of losses uh, onshore and offshore. Um, it's good that you're getting, you know, new companies involved. It's, you know, SCORE is is kind of increasing the, the scope of their... Um, uh, you know, what they're able to address. The The challenge is that, you know, I, I think these kind of partnerships are going to be necessary moving forward because um, insurers and in particular reinsurers have had a, a really rough go of it um, with some of the uh, kind of catastrophic losses that they faced, particularly in offshore over the years where, you know, entire projects have had to have, you know, the main shaft bearings replaced on the turbine or, um, you know, you've, you've had other, uh, kind of significant fleet wide issues, um, in, in some cases. So, um, you know, overall it's a, it's a good thing. It's a good deal. Um, but it's a, it's a market that's getting tougher and tougher to, to get into. Yeah. The important thing to understand about the insurance market in any industrial capacity, specifically, we're talking about onshore, offshore wind here, is that you don't have an insurance company and that's your insurance. You may have an insurance company, the broker or whatever that runs the thing, but you may have 20 in an offshore wind one, you could have 20, 30 companies in here. So like if SCORE comes in on a project, say there's right now we talked, we talked earlier today about Dogger Bank A. Dogger Bank A is going to have two two policies there, one for construction, one's when they turn into operations. There's going to be a turn off, turn on date there. That say we're going to go to the policy when it is in operation. That policy may be written by who knows? I don't know. Aon, that's the broker. But the Aon will have 20 different, 30 different companies behind them, each one of them taking 2%. 3%, 5% of that risk. There may be one lead on there, and that lead on something like an offshore wind project may only be 7.5% or 10% or 15%, as opposed to onshore where it may sometimes be 25, 30, 40% because you know that asset, that wind farm may be worth $100 million or $200 million where you go to an offshore wind farm, it's worth a billion. Nobody has that kind of capital. So a lot of times the lead is someone who really knows offshore stuff, like say the Norwegian Hull Club or Neord, they put that thing out um, because, you know, like the big, the big uh, pro case in the 
uh, North Sea a couple years ago where it was almost a billion dollar claim for all of the export cables or inter-array cables on an Orsted wind farm. A lot of people took a huge hit on that one. So having more players come in and be able to spread that risk out, uh, they're gonna, you know, there's good possibility of making some money. That's what insurance companies do. You know, say people say banks run the world, insurance companies are the ones who run the world. Uh, you can't get a loan unless you get it insured. So that's that's how you can look at that. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, 180 million dollars for that segment, it's not that much. But they'll get a couple percentage points on a on a wind farm and be able to learn a little bit more from that consortium that they're working with outside of even Acrisher. So uh, a good move on their part, and it's going to be we're going to need more capacity uh, as we as the as the world changes and we get more offshore wind as well. A lot of the insurance companies have also said that insuring bigger turbines is an even bigger risk than it was with you know upwards of like the 10 megawatt, 11, 12 megawatt offshore turbines that we have in the market today. So when you start talking about 15, 16, 18, 20 megawatt offshore wind turbines, uh, that's going to necessitate. Um, you know, more risk diversification. Portuguese energy giant EDPR has acquired Australian renewables firm ITP Development, adding one and a half gigawatts of renewable energy capacity. EDPR secured ITPD to significantly expand its presence across Asia-Pacific markets. The deal provides EDPR with an entire project pipeline plus an operational team to support rapid growth in Australia. Now, Phil... Australia is becoming a really hot market for renewable energy. It has been for the last 20 years, but I think uh, the the world is awakening to the fact that there's a lot of opportunity there. What does the Antelstar research point to for Australia? Well, there's 4.3 gigawatts under construction right now um, uh, with another, you know, close to eight gigawatts of um, uh, consented projects that are you know, uh, haven't started construction yet, but they're they're in the pipeline and in you know uh, a later stage of development. Uh, but they also have something upwards of 90 gigawatts of proposed projects in Australia. Now, a lot of that's not actually going to get built, um, but even if a, a fraction of it does, let's say 25% of it, um, that's still a rather substantial amount. So, um, getting in on you know a company that's got a pipeline already. Um, is a great thing, and b- bringing a brand name like EDPR to a, like the Australian market is uh, a fantastic idea. Where you know there's ample opportunity there. There's uh, likely to be factories um, built in the market uh, again. If some of those projects, that 90 gigawatt uh, pipeline that I talked about, some of that actually transpires, um, there you know Vestas will definitely do a factory in in Australia. That's going to make life easier for a company like EDPR if they want to be able to source turbines. Um, so, I mean, the bottom line is there's there's a huge opportunity. The challenge for Australia is they don't quite have the transmission infrastructure that they need to be able to accommodate that much capacity or any kind of an export market. They've talked about taking the electricity, converting it into hydrogen, maybe doing export that way, or building cables to Indonesia or other, um, you know, New Guinea, etc. cetera, um, you know, places around, um, uh, even uh, talking about doing an export cable between, a new export cable between uh, Australia and New Zealand. Um, so uh, the bottom line is there's, you know, opportunity there um, for them to be able to be a net uh, electricity exporter. Um, or hydrogen exporter, but the reality is, I mean, it's a 
it's a good thing to to get into a hot market, and Australia is definitely one of the top five markets. I would say the one of the big things about uh, the changing market in Australia, we have heard through the grapevine that some of the developers and operators are starting to push back on FSAs. So that is going to turn into a little bit more of a market where there is going to be some place for some ISPs and some other people in there. So it's a rapidly evolving, growing, changing marketplace. In the United States, the Congressional Budget Office has significantly raised expected costs for the RRA Bill's energy and climate policy provisions. Uh, greater investment and participation is seen in climate-friendly technologies like electric vehicles, batteries, wind, and solar power. The CBO now projects $428 billion more in costs related to the law's clean energy tax credits and other measures above original estimates. Now, Phil, I think the original estimate was about $370 billion over 10 years uh, when they passed that law. And now they're talking about more than doubling the amount of expenditure for the, the IRA bill. Uh, wind and solar being big drivers, obviously, and then electric vehicles and some of the EPA regulations. Some of the states are sort of forcing electric vehicle uptake faster. So that ends up being more uh, credits going out to to, to buyers of that. Uh, this is causing some instability. And I, and I know it's just getting talked about now, but what what happens here as we go forward and those costs continue to rise? Well, I mean, keep in mind as well, you've got as of 2024, 52.7 gigawatts of wind that is at least 10 years old or older. Um, and I forget precisely what the number is for solar, but they're also going to start seeing over the next you know five to seven years a ramp up in um, the amount of capacity that they could potentially repower. Certainly if wind repowering is going to be a huge driver to this cost increase, um, and it's because companies are starting to get wise to what you know, next era in Venergy and Mid American and, and Berkshire Hathaway um, have been doing for the last, you know, five or so years, six years. Um, you know, everyone else is starting to jump on that bandwagon and say, hey, my, my power purchase agreement is only like $22, but I can also get an extra 26 or, you know, whatever the indexed. Uh, prices for the PTC this year. Um, I forget what the the CPI number is, but uh, let's call it around twenty six dollars a megawatt hour. The the PTC is more than what you're getting from your PPA, so that definitely makes it lucrative to want to repower uh, your project. So you know, with that much capacity, again, fifty two point seven gigawatts of wind, that's ten years old or older, and would qualify for a PTC requalification with a refurbishment or a full repowering. Uh, that's the, that's something that's going to cause that number to potentially increase even more. They're, they're talking about trillions of this, Joel. They're, this, they're talking about this reaching one or two trillion dollars in a short amount of time. I see it happening. Uh, I think that there's going to be more people that take advantage of it. The When you get the, the mass consumer in there... Proposed changeover in just passenger vehicles, there's seventy five hundred dollars a crack. Now that's a lot of money, right? Um, so that's just that's that's one thing, and that's a, of course a drop in the bucket compared to what some of these uh, PTC credits are. But you also have forty five X and forty five C and forty five this and forty five Y and this the hydrogen. And there's so many parts of this bill, uh, and some of them are capped, right? There's sections of that thing, and we talked with David Burton from Norton Rose Fulbright. He said. This one's capped. There's only so much, and it's competitive to get. But this one is uncapped, and the ones that are uncapped 
are the ones that are just going to, they, they're just going to kind of run wild. Um, and if we really plan on getting this energy transition done the way we think we can, uh, those costs are going to grow and grow and grow. And you have big ones, right? Something like 30, instead of taking PTC on some of these offshore wind projects, the developers are taking the 30% ITC credit. And a 30% of one of these big offshore wind farms could be $300 million. Bam. <laughs>